Good morning. Hey, this morning we're beginning a new series through uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, uh, known to us as Philippians. And uh, why, why Philippians? How did I come to choose this over maybe all the other books of the Bible? Well, apart from the fact that it's like my favorite book in the New Testament, um, it really seems uh, to me that we're living in some some pretty dark times and getting darker. Does it feel that way to you? Over these past months, a spirit of heaviness has kind of descended over our nation. And that same spirit can affect us individually as Christians. It can affect us even corporately as a church. The COVID-19 pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, followed by organized protests all across our nation that have escalated into violent and destructive riots, including here in Seattle and Olympia and Portland, have have all occurred at the same time that we as a church are, are in transition and just trying to complete a remodel so that we as soon as possible can can gather again to worship and fellowship together. And in times like these, each of us needs to be reminded of and renewed in the joy that's ours in Christ. I've been reminded recently of the word of God through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61 and verses 1 through 3. This is a messianic prophecy. In fact, it's the prophecy that Jesus read in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth um, that be- was the beginning of his revelation of who he really is, who he was as Messiah. And uh, you might remember they, they tried to throw him over a cliff uh, because of his um, claim to be Messiah. So as I read this, hear the voice of Jesus speaking to you and, and to all of us. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Did you hear that? Jesus came to bring healing and release from captivity and from darkness He came to give us a crown of beauty in exchange for the ashes of our lives. He he came to bring the oil of joy, the anointing of joy, in exchange for our mourning. He came to clothe us in a garment of praise in exchange for the heaviness of our hearts, the spirit of despair. And he came to strengthen his people and to display his splendor through us. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is a letter that's saturated in joy. And my hope is uh, that as we study this heartwarming and encouraging letter together over these next weeks and months, that you'll 
personally be renewed in joy and that you'll receive it as an anointing from the Lord and that each of us will will put on that garment of praise instead of succumbing to that defeating spirit of heaviness and despair. So let's pray and, uh, and then we'll get into God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray, I pray that uh, as we study this amazing letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, that you would use it to encourage us, that uh, we would see new truths, and uh, Lord, that we would just be filled with joy uh, and receive an anointing of joy during these days. Lord, we pray today for our nation, for our state, for our county. We pray for our church. And Lord, we pray that the time will come very soon when we will be able to gather together again here in this place and and just celebrate your goodness to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. So come now, Holy Spirit, be our teacher and allow us, Lord, to see and to hear the things that you choose to reveal. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, let's begin this morning by just taking a brief look at the city of Philippi itself. Uh, and let's begin with where it was located. Philippi was in ancient Macedonia, directly to the north of ancient Greece, across a mountain range from the northwestern coast of the Aegean Sea. Uh, the modern city is, as is most of ancient Macedonia, uh, now part of Greece. The city received its name from Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. He made his capital there because the area was rich in gold, and uh, his mines were incredibly productive year after year after year. Philippi was also situated around some rich agricultural land, and, and the reason for that was because uh, Philip of Macedon actually did drain the swamp. Uh, the whole area was surrounded by massive swamps, and he drained them, and what was left was rich, fertile land for farming. Much later, the, the Romans conquered Philippi, made it home for retired Roman soldiers, other officials, and and they established it as a, a remote Roman colony, a full 615 miles from Rome. The architecture of the city and the, the mindset of the citizens was distinctly Roman. As a Roman colony, Philippi enjoyed a privileged status, and those who lived there uh, took great pride in their Roman citizenship. There was no active Roman military unit garrisoned there. That was one of the privileges. The only requirement was that the city officials maintained the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and put down any efforts to disrupt that peace. It's not hard to understand that anyone who, like Paul and Silas, for example, came proclaiming a new king in the person of Jesus Christ would face Pretty stiff resistance. So how was it that a nice Jewish boy like Paul and his friends came to 
a city like Philippi. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, open your Bible, turn it on, power it up, and join me in Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So, who are they? It's talking about Paul and his missionary team. And I don't want to burden you down with a bunch of information that you don't need and, and frankly don't want. But, but I thank God that Luke included these three verses in the narrative. And I'm about to tell you why. So you can say, tell us why, Pastor. Okay, I'll tell you why. Here's what's going on. As we saw sometime back, Paul made it his ambition to preach the gospel where it had never been preached before. And so he's pushing to preach the gospel across the northern Mediterranean region. The gospel that is the good news about salvation, based not on religion or race or works, but on grace alone, through personal faith, alone in Jesus Christ alone. So check out what Paul says here. In verse 6 he says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. (laughs) Now, if you were reading through Acts 16, you should stop right there and just ask a great big fat question. Why and how Does the Holy Spirit forbid anyone to preach the gospel anywhere? Didn't Jesus say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Uh, Yeah, he did. Now, I don't know the details, but here's what I know. The Holy Spirit that was poured out on believers on the day of Pentecost, who empowered the first century believers for mission, is, was, and always will be the director of that mission. The Lord who said that he would build his church assumes responsibility for the unfolding of the mission of his church. And it follows that God's people then are to be attentive and responsive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit with regard to where, when, and how he wants us to do what he has called us to do. Well, where are Phrygia and Galatia? There are Roman provinces in in what is now west-central Turkey. Phrygia is where refrigerators were first invented. No, just kidding. Asia in those days was not what we think of as Asia today. Asia, or Asiana, was what the Romans called the region that encompassed the entire western half of modern-day Turkey. Let's continue in verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, where's Mysia? Well, it's another Roman province, and it's further to the west. What about Bithynia? 
another Roman province to the north, going towards the Black Sea. But the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to go there. They were again blocked. Not by circumstances, but by the Lord of the church. How did that happen? I don't know. So what did they do? They did what made sense to them. They pressed on to the west, went down out of the hills to the city of Troas, a seaport city on the northeastern shore of the Aegean Sea. Reading on in verse 8, it says, So passing by Mycia, they went down to Troas. Now, I love that this recorded, I love that this is recorded in scripture for at least two reasons. The first reason is because I don't personally always have 2020 vision with regard to where God wants me to go and what God wants me to do let alone where he wants LifePoint Church to go and what he wants LifePoint Church to do. I go this way and may run into a wall. I, I go that way and run into another wall. I go the other way and find an open door. And it's encouraging me to know that someone as great in the kingdom of God as the Apostle Paul experienced that dynamic as well. I mean, come on, right? Second, I'm I'm grateful that that Luke included these three verses because it tells us that if we are simply available to the Lord, willing to do what he wants us to do, to go where he wants us to go, and we're listening for his voice, he'll block us, he'll prompt us, he'll lead us. As an example of this, I mean, who, who really knows the fullness of what God has in mind by relocating us as a church from southeast Lacey to northeast Olympia. We thought we were going to be a Lacey church for the duration, and yet here we are. I mean, who knows what what God is really up to by slowing us down in opening our new building and in our quest to gather here regularly to worship. All I can say is let's stay tuned to the Spirit of God. Let's stay responsive when he gives us greater clarity. And in the meantime, let's keep faithfully doing what he's already shown us we should be doing. So what happened next for Paul and company? Chapter 16, verses 9 and 10, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Now remember, they're at Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Does God speak to people through dreams? Yes. Yes, he does. There's a rich collection of these stories in in both Old and New Testaments. Many of you you know Bill Mikesell. I had a conversation with Bill this week, and during our talk, he recalled something that his former pastor had once asked in a sermon. When God prompts you, 
The next question is, what will you do next? When God prompts you, the next question is, what will you do next? That's a good question for all of us. Because the Spirit of God is constantly speaking, is constantly prompting us. And he intends us to respond with obedience. That particular night, as the pastor asked that question, the Holy Spirit said to Bill, ask Colleen to marry you. So Bill got right on that. And she said yes. What did Paul and company do when they concluded that God was calling them to travel across the Aegean Sea further west to Macedonia? Well, they didn't let any grass grow either. They they got in a boat the very next day and sailed north in the Aegean Sea and first to Samothrace and then west to Neapolis and then they traveled overland on the Ignatian Way to Philippi. Okay, so the call that came in the dream was to Macedonia. And there were a lot of cities in Macedonia. So how did Paul know to go directly to Philippi? My answer is IDK. I don't know. We can only surmise. We know by observation of the larger book of Acts and from what he wrote in uh, in his letters that, that Paul's mission strategy was primarily an urban one. He chose to focus nearly all of his efforts on urban centers because he knew, as someone else said, that he who wins the cities wins the world. Philippi was the most prominent and influential city in the Roman province of Macedonia. So Paul could take, could, could anticipate that if the gospel were to take root in Philippi, there was a great possibility that in time it would emanate outward from there to the entire province. Not only that, but, but Philippi straddled the Ignatian Way, which was a major Roman road that, that ran, uh, across the northern Mediterranean region from east to west, linking the Black Sea with the Adriatic Sea. And along the way, it it linked a large number of Roman colonies. And again, Paul may very well have been thinking of the opportunity for the spread of the gospel to those colonies along that great highway and beyond. During Paul's fairly brief ministry then in Philippi, once they'd arrived, three really cool things happened. The first one was that, as was Paul's custom, when he arrived, he went looking for a synagogue. But apparently in Philippi, he didn't find one, which says a great deal about the demographics of Philippi. It took 10 Jewish men, count them 10, to form a synagogue. And apparently there weren't 10 Jewish men above the age of 13 in town. So we can conclude that Philippi was an overwhelmingly Gentile city. But Paul met some Jewish women gathered for prayer on the Sabbath day 
by a river on the outskirts of town, which may also tell us that Jews were persona non grata in Philippi, so that if they were to gather, they had to do so secretly or at least privately. One of them was named Lydia. She was a merchant from the city of Thyatira, And verse 14 says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And as a result, she believed, and Paul had the privilege of baptizing her and her entire household. How cool is that? It appears that Lydia then must have been a woman of some means because she invited Paul and his team to lodge in her home. A second really cool thing that happened was that a slave girl who was demon-possessed began following Paul and company all over town. And as she did, she would repeatedly shout out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which was totally true, right? But also totally annoying as well, because this went on for days. Until Paul's patience ran out, he'd had just enough, and he turned to her and simply said to the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Just as simple as that, and the demon came out. Notice how unlike the theatrics in The Exorcist, right? It's a lot more like the scene in Indiana Jones where the, the guy in a turban dramatically you know, brandishes this scimitar And Indy just calmly pulls out his pistol and shoots him. Paul exercised authority in the spiritual realm. So he didn't have to get dramatic. The demon had to submit to him as Paul commanded him in the name of Jesus to leave that girl. The third really cool thing that happened is that Paul and Silas got thrown into jail. And you say, how is that cool? And why did they get thrown into jail? Well, it turns out that this demon-possessed girl had been making her owners a lot of money. And that particular revenue stream had suddenly been eliminated by Paul casting the demon out of her. So they dragged him into the marketplace. They, They brought Paul and Silas before the the local magistrate. They accused them of two things. They which was one, disrupting the peace of of Rome, disrupting the peace of the city, and also engaging in distinctively anti-Roman activity. Without so much as a trial, without due process, the magistrate ordered that they be stripped naked, beaten senseless, and thrown into jail. And, And the magistrate stood by as the, the thing kind of turned into a riot, and the crowd entered in, to the beating. You may ask, how is that possibly a cool thing? Well, well, wait for it. Paul and Silas are in jail, and they spent that night in jail singing and praising God. And they were doing that loud enough that all the other prisoners could hear them. At some point that night, there was a major earthquake, and, and the effect of the earthquake was that All of the shackles fell off of all of the prisoners, and all of the doors to their jail cells came open. The jailer, who had been sleeping, 
Suddenly realizing what had happened and thinking that all of the prisoners had escaped, was preparing to commit suicide when Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And that night, the jailer believed in Jesus, and he and his entire family were baptized. Pretty cool. Now, I said that there were three, but I've got to add a fourth, and this is also pretty cool. In the morning, the magistrate ordered that Paul and Silas be released. And Paul replied, when he received that news, we, who are Roman citizens having been beaten and imprisoned without legal cause. And now they're trying to release us secretly? And when that little bit of news reached the local officials that that Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens, that they had a come-to-Jesus moment, or more, accurate, more accurately, they had a potential come-to-Caesar moment because to have mistreated a Roman citizen in this way and this severely was a significant, punishable crime. So the, the leaders of the city, recognizing their dilemma, just freaked out, apologized profusely, and begged them to leave town which they did. And that's the totality of the record of Paul's ministry in Philippi. (laughs) We can assume then that it was among the families of Lydia and the jailer that the Philippian church was first established. Some have suggested that the slave girl also believed, but we're not told that in Scripture, only that Paul cast a demon out of her. So the gospel found fertile soil, a couple of families believed and were baptized, and the apostles were run out of town. But a fledgling church was established, and it continued to grow as the gospel continued to spread from that little group of believers. Praise God. Sometime later, somewhere around 62 AD, Paul again finds himself imprisoned. And this time he's under house arrest in Rome. The church in Philippi heard about his circumstances and sent from among them a man named Epaphroditus. And with him they sent a sizable financial gift. The sacrificial love and the support of Epaphroditus, the caring generosity of the Philippian church just overwhelmed Paul. Despite opposition and suffering, the church in Philippi had become a vibrant, believing community. And they had sent a man named Epaphroditus to assist Paul in his imprisonment. And Paul is writing now to thank them. That's what the the letter to the Philippians is. It's a thank you note. And to encourage them to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that are living expressions of the life of Jesus who lives in them. Not surprisingly, the themes of love and joy and rejoicing just permeate this letter. Uh, We'll see it as we go forward, but check out some of the things Paul says to the Philippians. In in one three, Paul says to them, I thank my God every time I remember you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. In one seven, he tells them, I have you 
in my heart. In one eight, he adds, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In 2.12, he calls them my beloved. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he refers to them as my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. And as we'll see and come to understand, Paul viewed the church in Philippi with great love and affection. And he apparently saw no reason in this letter to assert his apostolic authority. He he saw no cause to confront them regarding doctrinal error. He doesn't scold them for unfaithfulness to the gospel. Instead, what what we find is that he expresses great satisfaction with them. With one exception, that there seemed to be growing in the church at Philippi a spirit of relational conflict, a spirit of one-upmanship which Paul addresses gently but directly in a variety of ways. And at the center of, all, of it all is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's letter is composed of a series of short essays that, that all center around his discussion in chapter 2 of the work of Christ and his incarnation, his suffering, his sacrificial death on a Roman cross his resurrection from the dead, and his exaltation to the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, before I conclude today, I want to take you into this letter, but only two verses in. And I'd like us to examine Paul's greeting to these Philippian believers whom he loves. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are four features in this greeting that I want us to pay attention to this morning. The first is how Paul introduces himself and his protege, Timothy. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And I want you to notice first what's absent from this greeting. In the opening line of every other letter, with the exception of his two letters to the church in Thessalonica and his letter to Philemon, Paul asserts his apostleship. And in most cases, from whom that apostleship came. Why? Because what follows in each of those other letters requires an exercise of authority to address matters concerning either doctrine or conduct or both. But instead here, Paul introduces himself and Timothy to the Philippians in terms that express humility. He says, We are servants of Christ Jesus. The particular term for servant that Paul chose to the word, chose is the word doulos, which, which was used in everyday language to describe a slave. Someone who belonged to someone else with, without any ownership rights of their own. You might remember that Jesus once said to his disciples, you know that the Gentiles The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the kingdom of God, a doulos is a believer who lives willingly under Christ's authority. In total surrender to, to his will, knowing that Jesus alone is Lord. And the model is the servanthood and the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And that servanthood was seen supremely at the cross. And that ought to characterize anyone who, who aspires to leadership at any level in the church. The second feature I want us to observe before we get out of here is how, how Paul and Timothy address the Philippian believers. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. You know, on many occasions, Paul's letters were intended only for the leaders of the church. But notice on this occasion that he's addressing the entire church. Men and women, boys and girls, all the saints. And what does he call them? He calls them saints, which isn't just an NFL team, right? If you have a Catholic background, you might find this a little bit surprising. Because in Catholicism, the first characteristic of anyone who might be beatified and canonized as a saint is that they've been dead for at least five years. And secondly, they'll, they'll have to have led a life of not just service to Christ and to the church, but, but also have demonstrated that virtue at a somewhat heroic level. And then third, the church has to become persuaded that through the deceased individual's after-death intercession, <laughs> however you figure that out, at least one miracle has been performed. See, the Bible doesn't say anything of the kind. In fact, if those who some people refer to as saints were here today, and we might think of St. Paul or St. Timothy or St. John or St. Luke, they those people would immediately reject the very idea. Why are you calling me St. Paul? So what did Paul mean when he addressed the Philippians as saints in Christ Jesus? Well, that word is that's translated saints is hagioi, from, from the root word hagios, meaning holy. And in the New Testament, the word holy has two basic meanings. One is kind of a moral ethical meaning. It describes one's moral conviction, one's moral conduct. And there is a moral and ethical dimension to Christian lifestyle. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. It's the, the second meaning to which Paul is pointing, which is set apart and special to the Lord. Borrowing language from the book of Exodus, the apostle Peter wrote to believers, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of his darkness 
into his wonderful light. You know, from the moment that, that you by faith believe in Jesus and, and transfer your trust to him, God forgives all of your sins. He declares you righteous. He gives you the gift of eternal life. He sets you apart uh, as his very own possession and for his very own purposes. That's called justification. At the same time, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and begins to cleanse you and transform you from the inside out. And that's called sanctification. To be justified and sanctified is to be sanctified. Christians are saints not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done for us and in us through Jesus Christ. So in addressing every Philippian believer as a saint, Paul's affirming that these things are true of each of them because, notice, he says, that they are in Christ Jesus. It's only by personal faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that anyone becomes a saint, a holy one. Third, Paul includes the overseers and deacons among all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Well, well, what's an overseer? Well, well, it's just that. It's one who oversees. Someone who keeps his eye on the church like a shepherd watches over the flock. So he's referring to pastors and elders and, and others who come alongside them to provide personal care and protection for each one in the church family. Well, what about that other word? What's a deacon? The word is diakonoi in Greek. And the etymology of the word is really interesting. The prefix dia means thoro. And the second half of the word is konos or dust. A deacon then is thoroughly dust. (laughs) So the word is a descriptor of, of a person who is serving so intently, so actively, that he or she is kicking up a little dust. And don't picture Pigpen from the Peanuts cast. These aren't dirty people. Well, they may be because they don't mind getting dirty to make sure that things go well for individuals and for the church. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. So think of a deacon as someone who is actively serving and in so doing is kicking up a little dust. Fourth, Paul gives them a blessing. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is the pinnacle of the greeting. But we're short on time, so I'll just say this. Notice that Paul says that grace and peace come from both God the Father and God the Son. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Though he was rich, yet for your sake you became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Someone made an acrostic of the word grace. And it sounds like this. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. In the same way, the peace that Paul extends to the Philippians is 
peace with God, to know that our sin debt has been paid finally and in full, and that God's wrath toward us in our sin has been satisfied at the cross where God poured out his wrath in full on Christ as he died our death, as he died in our place. You might remember from our recent study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome that in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Justified by faith, peace with God, access by faith, standing in grace, and rejoicing in the hope of glory. Well, what has Paul accomplished then by this little greeting to the Philippian believers? And here's what, and it's not so little. He, he has compressed all of the elements of this profoundly encouraging message centered on the gospel that he will unpack as the letter unfolds. And we're going to be part of that unpacking in the coming weeks. And I, I hope you'll come along for the journey through this amazing, joyful letter centered on the gospel. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you don't know Jesus, you need to, you need to explore, you need to investigate who he is. You need to investigate his claims. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And in another place it says the wage of sin, the, the, the compensation for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's my prayer that today might be the day that, that you give your life to Christ, that you transfer your trust to him and to receive this gift of sins forgiven, reconciliation with God, and the hope of eternal life. That's my prayer for you. God bless you. Have a great week. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. And stay at least six feet from everybody. How joyful is that? Have a great week.